Hey everyone, it's Jennifer Harvey Sana, and I'm back here with my good friend and collaborator, Karina Glinton. We are here with conversation number three of our conversations on gifted trauma. And today we're going to explore the body. So the body's role and the effects on the body of trauma and specifically gifted trauma. So uh, one of the things that we thought about talking about today was just how the field of somatic experiencing came about in the last 20 years and how uh, therapists and scientists and neuroscientists and uh, trauma practitioners are realizing more and more how much the body is involved in trauma. So how much the, how much trauma affects the body, whether it's um, specific like shock trauma or whether it's like long-term developmental trauma. Um, and it gets stored in the body, and, and that can lead to us shutting down physically, psychologically, um, relationally, and so on. So there's like all these different levels of how uh, holding trauma in our body, holding the memory of trauma in our body affects our ability to be okay today, to be healthy, to be relational, to um, you know have good self-esteem and feel good about ourselves, and so on. And... Um, so it's interesting to explore, of course, as we're doing, the link between all of what's what we're finding out about how trauma impacts the body and how we can heal through heal from trauma through body-centered exercises and, and body-centered um, focus uh, as it relates specifically to giftedness and gifted trauma. So uh, something I was thinking about when we were thinking about doing this conversation was uh, some experiences that I've had that were gifted specific trauma uh, and and ways that they have impacted my body. And so I'm going to share a little bit about that. And then, of course, we'll want to hear from you too, Karina, about experiences that you might have had that related to gifted trauma that got stuck in your body. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But before I get started on that topic, later on in the conversation, we're going to talk much more about chronic illness and explain more about her project on that through Intergifted and what's coming up for anybody who is impacted by chronic illness. Um, and, and then, of course, gifted trauma is explicit in there because for some people, gifted trauma and trauma has been a big part of their, let's say, journey. I hate to say it that way, but their journey toward chronic illness and living with it and healing, healing from it in some cases. So uh, we'll also talk about that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Exciting stuff. Indeed it is. It's, it's, we're, at least I'm a little nervous talking about this stuff. I mean, nervous isn't the right word, but um, I almost feel like, are the words going to come out of my mouth? I mean, these are things that uh, people really haven't put together for the most part. There's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of research done on um, gifted people and gifted bodies, you know, so uh, there's kind of this theory out there about the, um, uh, what is it called? The hyper brain, hyper body theory. Oh yes, yes. So in in that, there's this idea like that the gifted person is potentially more prone to you know things like anxiety, mental illness, um, chronic illness, and uh, things that relate to like let's say a hyper body. You know, so a, a, a nervous system that's kind of not regulated a lot of the time, which links to like the idea of over, over excitabilities and having quote too much of, um, or an extra amount of energies, whether it's intellectual, physical, or otherwise. 
Um, you know, so there's a tiny bit out there about it. Is anything super conclusive? Not exactly. And it's still like all so fresh and new that it's kind of, yeah, I mean, we're just in the midst right now as we're talking about this, we're kind of in the midst of forming words and, and ways of, in language and ways of saying things around this. So if we sound a little confusing or confused, that's the, that's the way that it is because, you know, this is, this is such unexplored territory that um, we're kind of in some ways trailblazers. Uh, so bear with us as we, as we blaze the trail. We bushwhack through the land of the body. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say, yeah, I, I also have this feeling of uh, going on a limb a little bit. And yet, um, John, you and I have had many conversations in private and in our work together about this. And it's clear that it's a really important piece of the puzzle of giftedness and uh, clear that it's an important piece of the puzzle of gifted trauma and and what you know what the key to resolving and to healing from trauma is so it's not that we just wanted to go out on a limb for, no. for the fun of it which we would like probably <laughs> we would probably enjoy that uh, but it's because it's also really relevant and that we see that um blind spot i guess in the collective or in the mainstream understanding of healing of from trauma and so we wanted to address it and and offer up whatever we can offer up at this time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I mean, even as I've been practicing as a coach for the last 15 plus years, um, I've generally referred people out when it comes to physical things. I mean, I can make a comment here or there and, and, and say, well, you know, if you're having chronic headaches, you know, maybe maybe you're overwhelmed and maybe you need to like slow down or, you know, take a break from work or whatever the case might be. But um when people have been having, you know, chronic physical issues, I'm generally sending them out to a body worker and then still dealing with things on the cognitive level in our coaching. And so um, that's, I think, even, even though I've been practicing some of these things for a while in my own life, um, you know, as a, as a coaching practitioner, it's, it's kind of still, there's still, it's still separated. So it's really exciting to be seeing these things come together in one Yes. Yeah. It is a very exciting territory to explore. Yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about, um, I mean, if, if anybody's listening and they haven't listened to a conversation one or two, it might be a good idea to go back and listen to conversation one or two be, at one and two, because we talk more about what gifted trauma is uh, in those conversations. And I don't think we want to repeat that here exactly. Mm -hmm. um, but for anybody who's not going back, I will just very, very briefly say that gifted trauma is anything that feels dramatic to your giftedness or your gifted mind. So being different, feeling like an alien, having uh, people misunderstand you chronically, um, being bullied for the way your mind works, uh, you know, fill in the blank. So anything that's related to, to you having your particular mind that feels, uh, so 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 confusing or so overwhelming that you can, you're unable to regulate your nervous system you're unable to feel safe in in the world or with the people that are bullying you or whatever so that's a kind of a just very simplistic uh, definition of gifted trauma but yeah i encourage anybody who who hasn't listened to the first two conversations to go back and listen to them to get a better idea of what that is um so with that in mind yeah and thinking back to some experiences that I've had that directly relate to my body and the way that I 
am either able to stay well or not stay well. Um, some of my early experiences came to mind when I was thinking about having this conversation with you, Karin. Um, and one of them was that when I went to kindergarten uh, in the U.S., mm -hmm. I was five, like every like all the other kids, but I had already learned to read and I pretty much knew everything that you're supposed to learn in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is really common for gifted people. Yes. Um, and so when I got there, I was like, oh, okay, so this is just kind of a, you know, a continuation of whatever, whatever I've already learned and just do more of it. Um, and, and so when I would do things, I would just do them well without having to be taught generally. Um, and kids, you know, kids around me didn't particularly like that. They said that I was, you know, stuck up and um, conceited and all of the things that, that kids say to other kids when they, they're not happy about what, what the other kid is doing. Um, and, you know, I didn't really understand when I was five, I didn't really understand the concept of jealousy exactly. I mean, I, I could get the basics, like, I don't know if my friend had a, you know, an extra Barbie and I, I didn't, then maybe I would be um, jealous. I wish I had the Barbie, but aside from that, I it couldn't, I couldn't like attach it to, um, they were jealous that I was reading. Like that didn't make any, I didn't, I didn't really connect those dots back then. Yeah. I just knew that when I showed up as just the simple me, which included me doing things that the other kids weren't doing, I got, I got a lot of their scorn and it kind of crystallized in one incident when we had show and tell that was like, you know, you get your chance to bring in whatever your favorite toy or whatever it is and show um, the class and then tell them about it. And so most kids brought in like a, you know, like a favorite um, teddy bear or a picture from a vacation or I don't know, something like this. Well, I thought, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if I shared my favorite book? Yeah. And I can, I'll just read it to people. Cause I mean, everybody likes story time, right? <laughs> so I came in and I read my favorite book and I thought I was doing something really nice for the class. And also I was, I was truly, truly joyful of sharing this book. Mm. And, um, and afterward, I mean, the kids just, they just, you know, they bullied me. They, they, they just said, what's wrong with you? You're, you're such a teacher's pet, you know, all of those things. And this was like a really key moment for me. Like I, I really felt myself start to shut down, you know? Yeah. Um, and I could just feel myself like when I would want to speak up afterward, I think, uh Oh, like, what if I say something and then they're going to get mad at me again? What if I, you know, and then it, so it just kind of got like, stay quiet, be invisible. Don't, you know, just don't show too much. So I was, I still did well in school. Like I still did well in my work and everything, but I just tried not to, you know, show, show off or, or to be too much, quote, too much better, quote, quote, mm -hmm. um, than others. But that really involved a lot of body control. I had, <laughs> I had to control my body all the time because I had, a, I had all the OEs, you know, yeah. I was <laughs> bouncing around and very, very, you know, I wanted to say things and I, I was, you know, full of life. And And um, after some of these experiences, I mean, those are just, that's just one, the one that, you know, was really, really strong at that time, but there were many like, you know, like it in different ways. And, um, and, and so, yeah, it's it sort of shut me down body wise. And I started to develop bad posture and I started to 
develop, I started to develop reading problems after that, which is actually interesting um, because I got so stressed out when I would start reading. I started to, you know, read slower, um, mix up words, you know, feel really ashamed and stuff. And it was just this whole chronic holding pattern. And it, I mean, it never really went away. I mean, it did finally when I started working on these things as an adult. And especially after I learned, you know, remembered that I was gifted and started like diving into the literature about that. And then I started realizing, oh, like I've been holding myself, you know, as small as I can sort of to, to not draw the attention of people who are going to be threatened by that or who are going to judge me as like trying to show off or something. Mm-hmm. So it's a small example in a way, but it's had such huge, huge effects on my life. I like my heart clenches when I hear you talk about that. It feels, first of all, very relatable, but also like, oh, that hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. And I know, I mean, I've worked with so many clients over the years who have told me, you know, similar stories and their own, their own versions of it. Um, getting bullied, being, having friends be jealous, um, you know, having parents be um, very dismissive or even um, aggressive to, or, or, you know, really hostile toward the child's expression of their giftedness. Teachers being jealous, teachers trying to um, sabotage the child or the student, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. a lot of things like that and then of course there's the there's the other side of it exploitation being exploited by a teacher for their own ego um, being exploited by parents for their own ego you know like having your gifted mind be exploited so there's you know it's not just the being put down or bullied it can also be on the other side like exploited and and used yeah definitely there's like every combination on the spectrum yeah and a lot of people have both I mean I also have the other you know mine's a mix as well I wasn't just quiet and invisible sometimes there were you know like there were certain aspects of my brain that um, my teachers loved and and people loved so my parents were were really glad to have certain parts of my brain the ones that could fix other people's problems that could you know fix their problems that could be um, you know perform really well in certain settings and take care of lots of complex issues that other people around couldn't take care of. And so, yeah, I mean, I had a combination and I think thinking back to a lot of the clients that I've worked with over the years, it's combination as well. Mm-hmm. I, I've joked, you know, I, I joked a lot in my, it's not a funny joke, but I joked a lot in my twenties that I couldn't seem to find relationships where a person didn't idolize me and, and hate me at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would, yeah, I would, I would struggle a lot. I mean, I struggled a lot in my twenties with that because people would love that what I could do for them, but then they would also hate that I could do all of those things for them. <laughs> you know, I was like the, the, both at the same time. And that took me years to sort through and figure out like, what am, you know, what am I, what am, what am I relationally for people? Like, am I this thing, like an object of hate or am I, uh, am I a servant person that can, you know, put my brain to good use for them or, or what? Or am I something else? Like, do I have value just for me being me and expressing myself? Or, yeah. Yeah. So it's, and, and all of that has had, you know, ample consequences on the body. Yes. So um, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit more um, about what are those sensations like for people to just like connect it with their own mm-hmm. maybe holding patterns or, like when you're exploited, what is that in the body like? 
for a lot of people, it's, I mean, it puts you in a sort of state of dissociation. So you, um, you kind of have to split yourself off into two or more parts. Mm-hmm. So there's the part that people love. And then, you know, that's something that in psychology is often called the narcissistic wound. If somebody loves a certain part of you and, um, and exploits that, you know, most people typically want some sort of positive social feedback and need some sort of belonging. And so if, if, I don't know if, I don't know if you have qualities one to 10 and your social entourage says we like qualities one and two, but we, we shun the rest. Well, then you amplify qualities one and two, but you have to split yourself off in order to do that. And, um, and a lot of times it, um, it, 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 what it's why they call it a narcissistic wound. It forces you to sort of be narcissistic in your own way of being like, kind of selling yourself, selling parts of yourself out for, atten- you know, for attention and, and for quote love, which isn't really love. Um, it's just like the best approximation you can get in the, in those particular circumstances. Mm. And what that feels like in the body is that you, you physically, I mean, you, to shut down a part of yourself, you physically have to control yourself. Yeah. So if I would, you know, love to speak up, but I like speak up about my feelings, let's say I'm a really um, emotionally intelligent person and I'd love to speak up about my feelings and, or ask people about their feelings. And if that's totally shunned in my world, well, I physically have to control myself so that I don't speak up when I would feel like speaking up, you know, and the more you do it, the more, um, I'd say like concrete you become, you know, you're, when I work with people, you know, that are 40 or 50 and they literally cannot find their voice, mm-hmm. you know, it's like they're, it, it's like in a way, I mean, psychically speaking or whatever, it's like as if their throat is now concrete and they, they, they literally can't get it out. And it takes a lot of work to soften that and to get that, um, you know, that original sort of impulse back. Um, and then on the other side, the bullied side, I mean, it's, it's quite similar that you, people usually shut, shut down the parts that are being bullied. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of, for, for most people, there's a lot of shutting down, but also with the, I should say with the exploited version or the exploited version, um, there can be this feeling of, for the, let's say, you know, parts one and two aspects, one and two are really uh, valued in your world. And so you, you overemphasize those what can happen is it's almost like you burn out those, you know, those circuits, like, mm-hmm. cause you just, you have like a life energy that that's suppo- supposed to, you know, kind of, let's say ideally would be going to all 10 circuits, but the circuits uh, three through eight or three through 10 are shut down and, and circuits one and two are just getting all the charge. And so the like sort of this narcissistic self, as they say it in psychology, like burns out. It's like, you just, you, you can't, it's taking too much energy, you know? Yeah. And it's like upholding the flow of energy takes even more energy than it would for the original energy to go all to all 10 circuits because there's a fluidity or like an ease to the flow versus like forcing it to go into one and two. Yeah. Because when you say that, I mean, I even think of like a dam system, you know, and a dam system takes maintenance, takes a lot of maintenance, you know, uh, because it's artificially, things are art- artificially held and, and flow is, um, uh, you know, artificially maintained. Like, so it only flows, the water only flows down when the dam opens. 
Uh, it makes me think about the clients who come to us with burnout issues, for example. And I myself have a history of multiple burnouts. And it, this, this um, dam or circuitry analogy feels so apt for that experience. Because it's like, when I look back, I go, I wasn't doing that much. How did I burn out? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't working at capacity, really. I was burning out on something else. Well, and that's really fascinating because people, so gifted people that I, I worked with have asked me many times, like, I'm such an underachiever. How is it that I can be burning out? Exactly. Like, oh my God, no, you're a super overachiever at holding yourself in. Exactly. I mean, you, and, and like, I jo- again, I've joked, but you know, none of these jokes are particularly funny, but they, they, they just sort of help to bring a bit of humor to it. Um, or a bit of perspective is like, when you are, um, you know, when you're applying your gifted brain to uh, holding, holding patterns, like physical holding patterns, you'll probably do it damn well. (laughs) Yeah, it looks genuine and it looks like that's who you are. Yeah. And, and well, and like, I mean, the the gifted mind tends to complexify things. And so Mm -hmm. I'm shutting down and I'll have a very complex damn system that shuts me down, you know, and, and it'll take so much work to maintain that, that very complex damn system that, yeah, I really burn out, like burn out differently than, than maybe even somebody who um, is, is shut down in a, let's say, more simplistic way. Yeah, yeah. No less, maybe no less painful or no less serious, but just the complexity with which a gifted person can shut themselves down is crazy. Yeah. Um, I wish you, were, so- you had been there and told me these things when I was shutting down. <laughs> I wish I, I had, I wish the 38 year old me had been there when I was younger. So I could have told myself this as well. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And people would tell me like, Oh, you're stressed. You just need to relax more. Like um, here's for example, an image or like an anecdote that comes to mind in terms of the body. Right. I um, had chronic um, like jaw problems, like clenching my teeth at night and so on. And I, one time I went to the dentist, this was a time where I it was post burnout. I was unemployed and sort of resting a little time before trying uh, you know, to work in my career again. And I went to the dentist and he's, he was a very nice person and he was very sort of holistic. And he sat down with me to talk about my stress, <laughs> which was first of all, extremely embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And second of all, because I wasn't expecting that from my dentist. And second of all, he was telling me, you need to, you, you really need to reduce stress in your work. And I'm like, I'm not working. (laughs) (laughs) How can I be stressed? I have the, like, I can, I can sleep as much as I want. I have nothing to do right now. How can I possibly be stressed? And there was no part of me that was registering these other kinds of stresses, the, the burnout of the um, emotional circuits and the psychological personality circuits. Yeah. So yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a way that that happens. Oh yeah, indeed. Absolutely. I'm curious now if you have like any uh, similar, similar, you know, memories or anecdotes that come to your mind from your, from your childhood where you uh, either, you know, st- like uh, clenched or, or, <laughs> sort of, you know, got exploited or whatever. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> Where does start? <laughs> Which ones? Okay, so, so the irony for me is that I was a like very healthy child. 
um, you know, like not very prone to infections or, you know, like uh, if I got sick, it was always very mild. And, um, and, you know, like I wanted to be active and so on. However, now uh, in my early 30s, I learned that I have this genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And if I look back in my life, I can see how um, the stresses of gifted trauma, it's like, I think about it like this. I imagine Ehlers-Danlos to be sort of like um, a vulnerability or like, you know, it's like a place where something would be prone to cracking. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have, like not all Ehlers-Danlos people have problems, like severe problems, and some people are severely disabled. Um, so it goes through a really, really broad spectrum. Um, but when I look back, I think, you know, like I, I dislocated my, uh, my ankles really frequently when I was young mm. and it was, nobody knew what it was and, uh, people made fun of me for it because it was, it just looked really clumsy. Like, how did you just sprain your ankle doing nothing? Which is a funny parallel to what we just were talking about. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so then my version of the whole gifted thing was that for me, my as much as I have also all the overexcitabilities and I wanted to express myself physically and to be playful and spontaneous and just like, you know, climb things and jump from things like all kids do. Um, I was sort of pigeonholed as, mm -hmm. you know, the clever one who can't do anything physical. And that was really, really painful and really interesting because it, it was, it was like, I came to, let's say my parents and said, I also want to be able to run and jump like the other kids. And they said, well, you can't have everything. You're smart. <laughs> <laughs> You're a smart one, and usually smart people can't do physical things. And that was like, well, again, telling me shut down these circuits uh, and don't don't try, don't even try. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, adding on top of that, the emotional uh, stressors of the being hated and loved from my mind, like what you're describing, Jen. Uh, piled on top of that to create again those these patterns of uh, extreme contraction in my body it really felt like waking up in the morning and going to school it was like draining and like drying the life force out of me every day and so yeah like uh, when you say like like hardening uh, yeah for me it felt like a, a uh, yeah, like sucking the life out and leaving like a dry husk. And, um, and then that meant that I was actually fulfilling the prophecy of that, that other people had, you know, created for me. And I was nervous around people and therefore I was clumsy mm -hmm. and people highlighted that about me. And then I became overweight and then I was bullied for that. And so then it was like, my my makeup my physical makeup was coming together with an environment that was not supporting that body as it was and to flourish as it was and then there were 
um, added on stressors that kept reinforcing the weakness of my body. And they kept uh, reinforcing, and this is a totally different branch, but then there's the gender stereotypes. And then I was an ugly girl and a clumsy girl, and I was a fat girl. So there was all these stressors coming in, um, diminishing my body, exalting my mind, but in this twisted way where it's exalted, but also hated. Well, it's funny you, you bring up the, the gender thing, because I was just thinking about that as well, as it parallels your story. Mm -hmm. um, for me, you know, it's like uh, having that, having parts of my mind exalted, but then having the gender, like the gender ceiling, so to speak, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, um, it was like, yeah, yeah, you're the, yeah, you're the clever one, but don't worry, he'll just be, uh, you know, married with kids and yeah, not using your brain anyway. So it doesn't, I mean, it kind of like, it's kind of all, it's all sort of irrelevant. You just have to get through, you know, high school and then, then your life is all set anyway. So it's kind of like, doesn't, nothing matters. Like it doesn't matter how much effort you put in. It doesn't matter how much you hold, like it's all sort of irrelevant. Like if you hold back, you're going to get, you're going to get along a bit better. You're not going to have people like love or hate you, but like in the end, you're just going to end up, um, you're just going to end up like married with kids and yeah. And like, and, 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 you know, married with kids, that's fine. That's, <laughs> Just as like be, being like, okay, that's, that's it. That's all you, that's all you get. You don't, you don't get a chance for more. And even if you don't want that, cause I didn't particularly want that. So, yeah. um, you know, that was, that was for me as well. And then the, your story, I'm thinking about the gender thing and, and the disability questions and everything. It's like, you can see how this is, it's a really tightly woven braid, you know, between all of these different uh, things. Because, you know, for us, it was being female, but for a lot of people, it's being, for a lot of men, it's being male and, and being mm -hmm. sort of, we, I've, I've worked with plenty and now we have Max Sawyers, our new coach, who's specializing in this and, and your husband, of course, Merlin, um, specializes with men as well as a coach within the kitchen. And it's like, um, you know, men who were not allowed to be sensitive, were not allowed to like have emotional intelligence without being bullied for it. And, and all of these things, so like having the, the, the gifted mind, but then not like having, basically having to shut down the other side of it. Like we had to shut down some parts, they had to shut down others. Uh -huh. um, because of the societal expectations. And then of course there's gender non-conforming and then that's a whole like thing in itself. Okay. Different other body related traumas. Exactly. Well. Exactly. And so you, you put all that together with, with the gifted trauma and anything else that's going on. And then not to mention any other trauma that's going on in a person's life. And there's, you know, for most of us, you know, as Peter Levine said, it's like trauma isn't, it's a fact, you know? So um, it's not like, oh, well, most people don't go through it. And then we're just the oddballs. Like most people go through it. We just have also this aspect, which then inter, you know, interweaves with all these other ones and complexifies the other ones. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, just backtracking for a second to what, um, you know, your story, my story and what you're saying about um, the environment, giving the message that once you're an adult or once you graduate from high school, none of this will matter is not ever giving a solution to the thing in the moment. And then you have how many years of being subject to those dynamics. Well, absolutely. And I mean, for me as a gifted kid with my mind, 
if you said that's none of that's going to matter later, uh, that didn't make any sense. Like, no, of course not. I had, I had, a, I had, you know, a thousand questions about that, and but nobody was going to answer them because they there was just that set answer. Like, well, don't worry. I mean, and in my case, because of the religious, um, the closed religious bubble I grew up in, it was like you know, God's God works in mysterious ways, and we shouldn't ask too many uh-huh. questions. About that, yeah, you know? yeah. So it was and, really a shut down complete. Yeah, and meanwhile, all those stresses in the day to day keep accumulating in your body at the time where your brain is developing, your nervous system is developing, and you're shaping who you're going to be in the future. So, um. I, you know, I'm emphasizing this because I've often um, heard clients sort of uh, understandably wanting to minimize the impact that these kinds of experiences had in their life because mm-hmm. they haven't had the support or the, uh, you know, safe environment to explore it. And, uh, and just like pulling out the threads and, uh, and making it explicit that actually this, this was a big deal. And, mm-hmm. Just because every smart kid went through it, it doesn't mean that it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. And I mean, on the other side, too, I think a lot of people are scared to go into it because the, you know, the predominant model has been the, let's say, narrative, you know, the psychological narrative model mm-hmm. um, in terms of healing. So it's like, oh, if you're going to heal from it, you got to go talk about it for, you know, for four sessions a, a week for the next 20 years or something. Um, yeah. And it's one of the reasons that, like, I... I feel excited that we can bring up this, you know, we can go out on this limb and talk about um, the body and, and, and this act like the somatic experiencing track more because the truth is, yeah, it's important to some degree to, to get in touch with your narrative, to like have clear memories. And to like, when I look back, for example, on my, you know, five-year-old experience, I, uh, uh, reading the book and stuff now, because I've done the narrative and I've done, you know, done sort of healing in my body around that, I'm like, oh, well then, I mean, that had nothing to do with me per se. It was just, um, it was kind of natural. Like mm-hmm. they were, je- they had jealousy or they felt that I was, you know, making them look bad or, you know, fill in the blank and it had nothing to do with me. It wasn't like I was better or worse or anything. It just, it was kind of like tribal behavior and, yeah. and it, and it's not, it wasn't my fault. And, you know, if my, if I would have known about the dynamics back then, I probably would have handled it differently, but I was five. So I didn't yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. How, how could you, or how should you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But now, you know, looking back on that, it's nice to have that, that new narrative to realize like, Oh, I was just five and I totally didn't get the psychological implications of what I was doing. Um, and neither did the other kids. Like they weren't intentionally, I mean, they weren't like evil kids or anything. They were just, you know, they just were emotionally triggered by me doing what I was doing. And, um and so that's helpful on one level but you know it's it's nice to know that I didn't I don't need to do 20 years of therapy to figure that out and to and to from that I don't have to talk about it incessantly I'm talking about it today because we're doing this conversation otherwise I don't talk about this um uh you know it's it's one of those things that um it you don't have like because a lot of people, you know, they're, they're, they're like trying to minimize it. Um, and a lot of times it's because they're scared that if they don't minimize it, they're going to have to like d- totally dive into it. Sometimes it's just they're minimizing it because they don't want to, they're just like in denial. They're like, no, that wasn't a thing for me. Or they really don't believe it was a thing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a lot of people, it's like they're minimizing it because if they would 
admit that there's something there, the thought of how they'd have to deal with it, like confront it, heal it and stuff, seems so overwhelming. I think a lot because of the narrative model that's been, you know, predominant. Yeah. Um, so knowing that there's a lot of stuff that's just stored in the body and you can kind of work with the body uh, through, like, you know, somatic experiencing or through like somatic learning or some sort of, you know, body awareness, um, embodied mindfulness, these kinds of things. Um, it doesn't have to be, yeah, it doesn't have to be so intense and it doesn't have to be so personal, you know? Yeah, because that's the other piece. It's like when it's personal, it's like makes it in a way a little bit more painful versus when it's just this, this sensation that is coming up in your body, which is a natural reaction that your body has to a stressor. Yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe it would be good for our listeners just for me to talk a little bit about or for us to talk a little bit about what is happening in the body when there is these kind of stress stresses. Um, yeah. I'm not the expert at this, so uh, but this is something I've researched plenty, so I I know enough to say things, but um, I do recommend that anybody that's really interested in digging into this go and read um, uh, Basil van der Kolk's uh, book, Body Keeps the Score, anything by Peter Levine, who who is the founder of Somatic Experiencing. Um, And uh, we've recently read, Karin and I have both recently read a book uh, that's really good on these themes called Healing Developmental Trauma by Laurence Heller and uh, Aline Lapierre. And um, we'll put these links in the, in the conversation notes so that you can all go have a look at these resources. Would you add anything to that list? Um, <laughs> probably. Probably a lot. Probably. Well, that's a good start, I think. Um, like yeah this is a really good start so um yeah not nothing else for now uh, as it you know if if something comes up i'll mention it okay yeah so basically what's happening when the when a trauma experience is happening and 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 this is why it gets very confusing for a lot of people because um your body like your your body is kind of reacting in the same way whether it's like um somebody made fun of you because you're you know your hair was ugly or something, or um, because you're like going through some very severe abuse, um, the the body kind of either goes into this freeze mode or fight or fight, flight, freeze. And then there's this fourth one that's often cited called fawn, which is people pleasing behavior. So um, in, in the, in the brain, uh, basically the income that's coming in doesn't know, like it doesn't know where to go. So it, it hits the thalamus and then it's like, can't, doesn't know where to go. And it starts sort of basically looping around. You sort of lose sense of time. You lose sense of orientation. You don't know maybe where you belong, what's real, what's, um, if you're going to be okay, if you're going to die, if you're going to do whatever. And again, you know, people go, yeah, but I mean, they just made fun of my hair. How could, like, that seems so dumb that I would like go into such a, my, my brain would actually physically go into such a, panic loop or you know like a a, a sort of irreality loop kind of thing Mm. and and yet that's what our brains do and even even then again this is why I love this work because when you when you look at that it's like oh so even that wasn't personal it wasn't like I was being a dummy by responding that way it's like oops that's what brains do yeah Um, when they feel really threatened and what makes one person feel really threatened might be different than from the next person to some degree. I mean, there's some basics, like I think we're all going to freak out if we see like a tiger jumping at us or something, but um, 
but in a, you know it's context dependent for a lot of people when it comes to these um, you know more daily daily kinds of traumas uh, how we react is, is sort of context dependent um, if we have a really good support system, if we have really good self-esteem, if people understand us, if we have freedom of expression, if, you know, fill in the blank, it's less likely that things become traumatic for our brains or that if we, if our brains do register a sort of traumatic reaction, that we can overcome it relatively easily, let's say, because if you do have that, um, trauma reaction, but your body is able to discharge that, that stored up experience that stored up sort of panic or whatever and make sense of it um, contextually and socially, then you won't, you won't keep it in your body as a, as a sort of trauma that will keep coming back in, in terms of like flashbacks or continued dissociation or then chronic, um, chronic tension, and potentially chronic illness and these kinds of things. So um, I think it's really helpful to know like that, you know, these things are just happening in the brain, like for all of us. At, from time to time. And if our context, like I said, if our context is uh, really good, whatever it is, then it's less likely that we will, you know, continue to carry it into our future. It's when our context can't do that for us. Um, like our context keeps us feeling insecure. It keeps us feeling confused. It keeps us feeling dissociated. Um, then we just carry that into our future. And that carrying it into our future is through the continued tension, the continued holding, continued flashbacks, continued dissociation, and all of these things that come along with, you know, trauma reactions. Mm. Did I, did I miss anything important to say about that? Um, there's one piece that I'd like to add, um, which is one of the big sort of, um, what you call like daily traumas. One of the big ingredients for that is the experience of shame. Yeah. So it's not just to think about it as, uh, like, not just about whether you're afraid for your safety um, but also when we are when we feel socially rejected then the experience of shame is what will trigger those survival responses and so uh, you can then very easily make the link between gifted trauma and being alienated for who you are as a gifted person and that experience of shame and because shame is such a, um, yeah, it's, it's an emotion that tells us there's something wrong with us. We need to like delete a piece of ourselves that it, it's like a recursive loop. Become, we become ashamed for being ashamed for being ashamed and so on and so on and so on. Um, and that is often the somatic experience of um, you know, trying to contract, control, um, become invisible, all those things. That is the emotional uh, counterpart of how we would, you know, potentially describe it. And many of the people I've worked with and a lot of the reading I've done talks about how it is so um, devastating in some ways that it goes really underground. Um, so we might register our anger, but not our shame. All we know is that we want to get out from whatever situation we're in. All we know is that we're sweating or all we know is that all of a sudden we want to be invisible um, and not necessarily registering that that is what shame is. You know, sometimes if it's like embarrassment and we can contextualize the embarrassment, it's easier to understand the shame. But if it's, uh, for example, Jen, in your story of, 
having joyfully shared something really beautiful and really life-giving to you, like that book that you brought to kindergarten, and then being met with scorn, that can also be a kind of situation that produces shame. Mm-hmm. And then that the shame itself is felt as life-threatening. Yeah, exactly. Something else that came to mind as you were saying that um, it, that's less, um, it, it's, it's sort of, let's say, more neutral than shame, emotionally speaking, um, but it's still really, uh, really, really relevant for gifted people thinking about, yeah, gifted specificities in this domain as, um, you know, this kind of sense of uh, resource inefficiency, insufficiency. Mm-hmm. Totally. So not having, uh, like, for example, if you don't have if you don't have gifted education, or let's say if you're profoundly gifted, but you're in like gifted education with mildly gifted, mostly mildly gifted kids, um, if you have if you're not in gifted education at all, you don't have gifted teachers, you don't have teachers that understand giftedness at all. Um, you know, your parent, if maybe your family isn't gifted or very very different giftedness level than you, or I don't know some feeling like you don't have enough coming in at you in terms of like things that make sense to the way that you experience the world. Um, so that can be about like, you know, cognitive processing, like the way that people cognitively process the world around you. And then you're cognitively processing the world like this and it doesn't make any sense. And you need re- like, you need the social resources of people who can mirror you. Like we talked about in the last conversation, or it can be like, literally you don't have enough like input, like you need to learn more I mean, you know, me growing up in the 80s, like we had to go to the library, you know, to get stuff. And um, I just felt like I can, I'll never get enough. Like there's not enough books in the library. What am I going to do? And then you might go like, yeah, well, but that's a, that's a, um, you know, first world problem. Like this is something that people would say to me, clients would say, yeah, but it's a first, I shouldn't be complaining about that. There are people, uh, you know, um, dying in, in wars and stuff. And, and it, that's absolutely, I mean, on one hand, yeah, that makes sense. And on the other, um, the brain may be registering that resource insufficiency as a survival question. Absolutely, yeah. And so the brain is still doing its thing, even if you're telling it, you know, that like you're giving it the moral signal that uh, it shouldn't be doing that. It's still doing that. So it's still registered. It still can be registered as this like panic. And when I think about, um, you know, the existential depression and, and, kind of these existential crises and crises of meaning that a lot of gifted people go through. I, my personal opinion, I haven't written about this yet, so I can't quote myself in any article. I don't, I can't quote anybody else either. I don't, I don't remember reading this anywhere in the research on um, existential depression, but I'm, I'm kind of convinced that there's, for a lot of us, there's an element of resource insufficiency that triggers this looping, you know, this kind of looping spiral thing, um, like a Trump, like a, you know, trauma loop, basically, trauma reaction loop, um, where we, we we didn't have enough resources. And so we actually don't know how to give ourselves enough resources once we're able to, you know, once we're an adult and we're able to make our own choices. Mm-hmm. We limit ourselves uh, resource-wise, socially, um, you know, and, and intellectually and, and what on whatever other level, emotionally, maybe. Um, and then we continue to feel this sort of emptiness, like... Yeah. And it just loops around like that. And that's, I mean, these are all examples of how it it can continue to affect you. Like, yeah, years later, your brain decided to respond to that, that way at that time because that's how it perceived the situation. And then it can keep you looping in that. 
Yeah, I'd like to share something about my own story that relates to this. Um, so one of my trauma experiences, rather than being about like active uh, people actively hurting me, there's another stream of trauma that I, I could call it like a neglect trauma. Uh, and it is gifted trauma because it was about me being so, you know, such a good girl, you know, so clever and so on that I, I, nobody needed to supervise me for anything. And what that meant in concrete was that, let's say I would go to school and I would come home and I would be in my room and not, you know, just do stuff in my room like play or do some crafts and everything, do all of this alone. And that was like a very steady pattern for me growing up uh, It because of, you know, cultural reasons and family reasons I also wasn't you know like allowed to go play with kids mm. so there this is the kind of um this resource insufficiency that you're talking about I didn't have access to books even though I wanted to have that and I also didn't have access to social contact and uh, you know like I didn't have access to like in school to more resources in terms of learning and so on and so forth. But everybody acted like, like I was like, this, this was good. It was good that I didn't need anything. <laughs> and so it's just like, you know, one of those plants that you could just leave in a corner and they don't wilt, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I was like that. And that was like, that was so good. I was being such a good girl. I was not demanding attention. I was not like, you know, needing problem solving from anybody. And that, um, that definitely impacted me later on. Well, all my life mm -hmm. in terms of like all the physical, like self-care, understanding self-care as more than just the basics of existing, like existing in a space. And that that meaning like, yeah, you need to regularly have you know, social support. You need to regularly eat healthy food. You need to regularly go outside. You need to all these things. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, like it impacted me and the experience of it, like this like emptiness, blankness. Uh, what do you call it? This like sensory deprivation. Yeah. Yes. And as a side note, I, I also have sensory processing disorder. So sensory deprivation is a really big deal for me. Um, and it would be for anybody. <laughs> it so happens to be that I also have this additional um, exceptionality. I would then once in wow. a while, really once in a while, have these meltdowns that came out of nowhere. And everybody would be so shocked. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and uh -huh. I would, and I had internalized that as me being irrational, you know, yeah. like mm -hmm. it was just one of these bad sides of my character that I tried to hide. Yeah. And later on with this depersonalizing um, approach that you've been talking about, Jen, of realizing, yeah, that's just how my brain works. It's not, you know, it's not a flaw of my character that I have a meltdown when I don't get the right kind of sensory input. <laughs> 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 right wow yeah yeah I like that you brought up the neglect aspect in, in that way and and the self-care I mean that's so important and I it's, I mean this is a theme if I had to say like the main theme that I see when I'm working with people with chronic illness um 
of which I have had in my lifetime as well, um, and I've had the same issues, uh, is this neglect self-care um, dichotomy happening. Absolutely. And yep. um, in my case, because of the religion, it was like, you're not supposed to really want to know anything else outside of the Bible. And um, so there was a lot of limitations, uh, I mean, due to the religious strictures and, and the general kind of leadership position uh, in, in our religion that was like, you know, nothing else matters except for the Bible. Like the Bible is, we would always hear God's, uh, the, the Bible is God's word or it's, you know, the literal, uh, the literal interpretation of it. God, the literal interpretation of God's word, that's it. Like we don't need anything else. So there was a lot of neglect around that. Um, and everybody that I worked with who's had religious or spiritual trauma, uh, religious or spiritual abuse specifically, um, has really struggled with these similar things, you know, self-limiting, um, limiting the kind of care we give to our brains because you get so used to, again, you get into these holding patterns, like uh, we're talking body, but of course, I mean, neurologically speaking, you get, it's the whole, you know, neurons that fire together, wire it together. And, um, and you, you know, your brain gets used to these patterns of self-limiting uh, in order to survive or in order to not make waves in your family or whatever. And, um, or just because you didn't have any other resources available. So your body, your, 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 your neurons got used to um, basically mapping out reality with limited resources. And, and so it's been interesting for me too, you know, growing up and I, when I, I got out of the religion as soon as I left my parents' house, but um, I, there was so much about the way that it formed my brain that stayed around, even though I didn't call it God anymore. I called it, you know, things like fate or, I don't, you know, these kinds of things or just this story, again, it turned into a different narrative, um, but it was the same, I say same narrative, different, you know, characters, so to speak. And, um, and so I had to really learn self-care. Like what is self-care for my brain, you know, my gifted brain, what does that look like? And how do I take action on that based on, um, based on what I know needs to change about my neurons <laughs> and the way that they're they're wired right now you know back back then when I got first got out of the religion um and that was huge I mean that took me well I'm still work in progress to be quite honest I mean it's but it, it took me a good portion of my 20s to even come to I mean even come to a place where I could sort of think about self-care in, in a healthy way and what's fascinating about that is um that really combined with shame for me there was, you know, it was thinking about, I need, like, I need more felt very shameful. Mm, same. Yeah. So yes. it's definitely a theme that I've seen for a lot of people. And of course, if you, if you're not doing, I mean, if you're, if you're self-neglecting and you're unable to do self-care, it's natural that your body is like, no, I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not handling that. And then, you know, then follows the illnesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I wanted to add like an end piece. Um, which is when if we're already in a trauma loop or in like repeated states of dissociation and we also and you add to that a pattern of learning to neglect yourself because you've only been neglected or you've only been lacking resources all your life then it's like you're, you're creating a recipe for disaster for your body because you're basically like not even in it and and leaving it it's like abandoning it 
yeah and uh and it's it's unfortunately pretty common yeah 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 absolutely so um Maybe now you could share a little bit about the project that you're working on uh, with us and um, why you're doing that. Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, what we have going on right now is a project called Making the Invisible Visible and uh, subtitle is The Intersections of Giftedness, Chronic Illness and Invisible Disability. And uh, so yeah, or to start talking about it. It's really exciting as we were sort of hinting at in the beginning of the of the recording, like just a very new exploration that there's not, it's not like much has been said other than, you know, talking or research on twice exceptionality, for instance, not much has been said about what it's like to live as a gifted adult who has a chronic illness, who is invisibly disabled, and uh, how does that subjective experience impact our experience of our giftedness, our experience of our bodies, um, our experience of life, uh, what, what we have learned along the way that maybe other people in the community don't know about or uh, would never have access to, as well as really just um, exploring like, our stories, our narratives, our um our pain in a constructive way if that makes sense like not necessarily to be like oh poor me i'm i'm sick you know but to really be able to say i am sick and that's this is hard Mm -hmm. um and so in inside that umbrella of making the invisible visible right now what we have going on is a, a writing compilation um, you know, Intergifted, as you may all know, has done writing compilations the past two years and created an ebook out of the pieces that uh, community members contributed. And so this year will be centered on or this one. I don't know. Maybe we do another one later in the year. So this one so far this year is uh, centered on uh, people who identify as chronically ill or invisibly disabled and gifted and uh and them sharing whatever it is that they want to share around that whether it is you know how that happened for them like how they discovered it or whether it is um what daily experience is like whether it is the things that they've explored um existential questions about you know like just being in the in the experience of giftedness and chronic illness puts us sort of in um very outlier places and situations life situations and um, experiences that are not what you would expect and there are a lot of existential questions that go with it a lot of us are asking ourselves you know what does this mean to be sick what is this what is the meaning of my life if I cannot function as a normal person in society these kinds of questions is what we're exploring yeah and I think as this um, as it ties into our theme today it's like whether, um, whether, you know, anybody who participates has, um, experienced gifted trauma or trauma that has been a factor in the, in the arising of their, of their chronic illness or their disability, or if being disabled or chronically ill and gifted has itself been a sort of traumatizing factor these are all things that they can explore because it may be you have a chronic illness and it has nothing to do with trauma and it's, it's 
it's genetic or who knows. Um, and, and, but even then, like, you know, you know, from your experience, having your mind and then having your body has, can sometimes feel quite traumatic because the two seem to be on such different speeds. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, uh, it can be tearing you apart in a way, like your body goes in one direction and your mind goes in another direction or it, you know, for some of us, it's actually been, you know, like, how do we make them meet in the middle somehow? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, but it also like a lot of, you know, just tough choices, you know, do I, yeah. uh, choose being so limited that we need to make tough choices about how to self-care how to meet those gifted needs and so on yeah yeah so i think like there's this kind of co-exploration uh of of some of sort of this you know the daily existential stuff and well daily and you know future existential stuff but then there's also at the same time this kind of processing of um, how maybe unseen forces have been have played a role in this, and um, you know we've you and I have been exploring uh, outside of that project. We've been exploring some of these themes in our own life between chronic illness and giftedness and self-expression and gifted trauma and all of these things. And you know it's so fascinating to see what comes out um, that we just we you know we realize so many things just in just in writing or you know doing a piece of art or whatever it's just it's like all of these dots connect just because we're having the conversation it's yeah. not even like, oh, oh you know you're gonna heal yourself by writing this it's i mean it's it's just like okay let's have this conversation and then a bunch of things ha- are happening yeah i'm um, not even necessarily quote healing i mean this sort of that's maybe relevant or irrelevant depending on the person but it's like this opening this you know clarifying connecting all of these things that are happening just because you're having the conversation so it's almost like we're providing this space where a lot of a lot of new um, seeds can be planted and not a lot of new connections can be made a lot of as we like to say sometimes a lot of new doors can open up in the universe you know like a new wing of the universe can open up um just because the the conversation is being had and you're you're getting the opportunity to express something about your unique perspective on this in a community effort. Yeah. And I just wanted to say one of the things that becomes really experientially clear through those explorations that we've been doing is there is like a deeper, deeper connection between the body and the mind or however you want to conceptualize it, the physical and the spiritual or whatever uh, every each person's language on it is the the multiplicity of connections and the overlaps between what happens in the body and what happens in the mind is astounding yeah yeah it is and i mean when i i mean in the explore uh, explorations we've done so far like it, it it makes it this really fascinating puzzle as opposed to this like frustrating daily loop you know yeah <laughs> it's like there's room to move and speaking of um you know resource insufficiency or kind of you know feeling blocked from 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 going on from moving on or whatever it's like here's a nice way to open up the the possibility space yeah 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 and that's the thing it's like it's not like you're saying not about resolving or healing or fixing anything but about making it a 
a more engaged space, a connected space, and well, to inhabit that with maybe a little bit more ease or a little bit more joy. Yeah, and it's a, I mean, it's an interesting parallel to the work we do as coaches because um, a lot of times coaching, you know, it's it's not to quote fix something per se or uh, you know, it's not specifically to heal something. Um, but a lot of that stuff happens as a byproduct of opening up the space where there are new possibilities. I mean, in general, that's the work. That's what yeah. we do. That's, that's what we do. <laughs> we're a big space opener. <laughs> that's what we do. And I just wanted to add also that um, we've had a, you know, a bit of a conversation in um, chronic illness and giftedness inside of the IG Facebook group. And to just say, like, there are a lot of us who yeah. are sick or who live with an invisible disability and have to navigate the world from that uh, even more outlier perspective. So it might be a surprising connection to make between giftedness and illness, but it's there and it is really, really powerful. Uh, it's really strong, like, you know, it's, it's a real present issue. Yeah, it really is. And maybe in the, um, in the conversation notes, we can include the, the link that we uh, included in the compilation stuff about the different forms of disability. Oh, yeah. I know, I mean, a lot of people don't even think about what they live through every day as a form of disability. They're like just powering through, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, actually, yeah, most people don't have to deal with that. Oh yeah, that is limiting, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not to be like, not to put like a negative spin on it, just to call a fact a fact and, uh, you know, and then allow you to process it however you process that, like in, in constructive ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I also wanted to mention that we have a very cool thing coming up as it links to all of everything we've just talked about it is um, that Kelly Pride, who is our one of our coaches and is the founder of our partner project, the Gifted Mindfulness Collective, she's going to be doing a uh, an embodied mindfulness course coming up this spring. And that's a wonderful opportunity for anybody who who is struggling with body issues. Yes. Um, on, uh, you know, on any level, um, it's also for some, it's good for anybody who's interested in learning mindfulness because embodied mindfulness is a great, it's a really wonderful form of mindfulness, especially for people who don't do very well with the cognitive side of mindfulness, um, that don't do well, just like sort of sitting there and being with their feelings and thoughts and, and stuff, um, who need to, some sort of activity or some, you know, some sort of more concrete way to get, get into the mindfulness thing. But um, it's going to be great timing that we do this in the spring with Absolutely. Kelly. Yeah, I, we're super excited that Kelly's doing this because bringing more of the body into the gifted uh, sphere is just fantastic for everything that we stand for and believe in. Absolutely. And I mean, on a bigger cultural level, I think what, I mean, like what we're trying to also contribute to by having this conversation today um, and by doing this whole series and a lot of the um, initiatives we do in Intergifted is like culturally in the gifted culture, there has been um, a major emphasis on accomplishing um, eminence um, and, and kind of almost like a brain in a vat situation. Like you're this brain, go, go be super cognitive and be wonderful. A lot of times to the detriment of the body. Um, 
So, I mean, it's wonderful if you have the, the, the best support in the world that helps you to be fully in your brain and fully in your body. I think that's great, but a lot of us have not gotten that. And so, um, as I mean, as a gifted culture issue, this is one of the big things that's like learning how to be both at the same time, how to, you know, be in your brain and do things, but then how to also just be in your body and just be. Yeah. Like, enjoy being you know (laughs) not only enjoy once you accomplish something and and can show that you you know that that, like that it's like a trophy for your brain basically it's like no just being able to wake up every day and feel good in your body and feel good about yourself and just enjoy existing yeah like uh, the ways that we can have it all (laughs) in a way Um, yeah yeah and having all the circuits like going back to the beginning of this conversation having the physical joy and the spontaneity and the expressiveness and that psychomotor OE that is so uh, forgotten sometimes mm-hmm. can have a way to to be brilliant as well as the rest of us. Exactly. All right. Well, I think we've exhausted some ideas. <laughs> Something that we could go on forever, but um, but I think for a, a little bit of an intro into this this uh, this world of the of the body and its and its relationship to gifted trauma i think we've done a fair a fair job going out on our limb yeah and hopefully the hopefully all of our listeners are a little bit more um enlightened on this subject uh, aware that it exists and have some resources to go explore i'm guessing that this would probably be some sort of part one of you know a multi-part conversation depending on the feedback that we get from listeners and the questions that come up. Yeah, definitely. We want to hear from you all listening. Uh, what intrigues you? Uh, where would you like us to continue exploring? Uh, what is missing from you, from the conversation for you, uh, etc. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple ideas for, well, we've got lots of ideas for upcoming episodes, but two of them probably nearer future episodes will be about um, projection and getting kind of basically self-leadership. So, uh, getting out of sort of dramatic, you know, high drama relationships, um, and how that relates to like how we got into them from gifted trauma situations, mm-hmm. um, how, how we lead ourselves gently out of them. Uh, and, um, and another one is kind of about the types of trauma that extend just beyond gifted trauma, um, and helping listeners to identify if they have, had those situations um a lot of us grew up like for example in abusive situations but we didn't think of them as abusive at the time because like that's just how dads were at that time or whatever fill in the blank um so you know we'd like to explore kind of what what the different kinds of traumas are um, and talk about how um even when it's regular trauma a gifted person uh, tends to experience it more in more complex ways so even if it's not gifted specific trauma uh, you may be really more affected by, um, like, you know, you and your siblings go through the same thing and your siblings don't seem to be so affected and there you are, you know, having a crisis and you wonder why. It could be because your gifted mind is complexifying the, the situation uh, significantly. So you know, going into some of those details, um, which has been really helpful for a lot of the people that I've worked with and in all of the courses that I teach, that's one of the top favorite uh, topics. So... Yeah, very much looking forward to the following conversations and uh, 
And also, it's been wonderful uh, reading and hearing all of your feedback and uh, seeing that the, the conversations so far have struck a chord with many of you. Yeah, same. I've had lots and lots of you write me um, to say thank you and uh, to tell us stories about how it's affected you know, your life already. And so we're really glad to hear that. We're, um, we're happy that us just sitting down having a conversation can have a good effect on yeah. a lot of people. <laughs> because we so love we'll to sit down and have conversations. We do. We do it all the time. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Karin. Thank you, Jen. It's a pleasure. And thank you, everybody listening. Bye, everybody. Bye.